I'm Chad Main, the founder of Legal Services Company Percipient, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology, legal innovation, and the impact tech is having on the law. On today's show, I talk to crypto lawyer Nelson Rosario about blockchain technology and the regulatory and political implications of crypto. Today's guest, Nelson Rosario, started out as an IP lawyer, but he caught the crypto bug real early in his career. His law firm, Rosario Tech Law, is a boutique law firm focused on servicing crypto and emerging technology companies that are working toward changing the way we all interact and deal with privacy and power. Among other services, Nelson's firm provides companies with strategic counseling, outside general counsel services, help with intellectual property issues, and assistance with privacy issues. Like many of the guests on this podcast, Nelson has a real interesting background. Before he went to law school, he worked as an election record specialist in Florida. And in that job, he worked to streamline voter registration rules and how his county processed absentee ballots. In this episode, we talk about a bunch of crypto-related stuff, but germane to his background in elections, one of the things we discuss is the impact blockchain technology might have on elections in the future. And this is a two-for-one episode. We also do a quick check-in with Jazz Hampton. As you recall, he's the CEO of TurnSignal. That's an app used during traffic stops and other police interactions to access legal help in real time. We talked to Jazz earlier on this year, but since we last talked to him, TurnSignal has made a bunch of progress. He fills us in on the company's recent fundraising efforts and the other jurisdictions TurnSignal is now available in. We'll get to Jazz here in a little bit, but for now, let's get to our conversation with crypto lawyer Nelson Rosario. I'd always been interested in law just as a because of what law is abstractly, a system of rules, agreements, things that we as participants in society kind of implicitly or explicitly agree to. The only thing I guess I ever thought of doing professionally was being a lawyer. And so after I graduated college, I was working in government. I was working as an election official in election administration. And I kind of sat down and wrote out you know, what is it about the law that I want to do? What kind of law do I want to practice? And I realized that I was interested in tech law and society, how they all interact. I started looking for legal jobs that could cover those wants and discovered intellectual property, which I really didn't know anything about. But as I started researching it, I realized I needed a tech background or it'd be very beneficial to have a tech background. So I actually went back to school, got a second degree in computer science and Went to law school with every intention to go into patent law, and that's what I did. And then that turned out to be not exactly what I thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, there's definitely a connection between IP and blockchain, but what got you interested in blockchain? So I started law school, and about that time, I guess it was 2012, end of 2012, early 2013. I started getting interested in Bitcoin. Of course, I was busy because I was in law school and distracted. And and I just remember thinking this shouldn't work. But part of my interest in Bitcoin initially and then blockchain later on was, you know, Bitcoin is and kind of every other crypto system afterwards is a solution to the double spend problem. The double spend problem was a, is a problem that had plagued attempts at digital cash for decades, really. Basically, it's you know, if I send you $5, what sort of assurance do you have that I haven't already sent the $5 somewhere else? I haven't spent it twice. And Bitcoin fixes that. That's one thing Bitcoin does fix. As the meme online, Bitcoin <laughs> fixes this goes, Bitcoin actually does fix the double spend problem, right? And so 
voting is is another kind of double spend problem, right? We only right. want people to vote once. And so that was part of my interest in the space. And then my, you know, my degree in computer science and let's just say familiarity with peer-to-peer uh, systems was part of that. And so, you know, I followed the space, kind of really fell down the rabbit hole in 2014, started practicing, you know, just traditional IP law and worked with some financial institutions as part of that doing patent prosecution work and guess that they would eventually start doing stuff with blockchain because at that point the meme had kind of transitioned well from bitcoin to blockchain everybody was going to you know blockchain all the things make that distinction too we talked about crypto cryptocurrency bitcoin but then it is a use case for the blockchain technology explain the difference there right well, let me just preface that by saying, if you ask a lot of different people highly involved in this space, <laughs> you'll get a lot of different answers. I don't know that there's clear, bright lines that everybody follows with respect to any differences. I think one way to think about it that's useful is any sort of cryptocurrency-based blockchain network where value transfer of some sort of token that's unique to that network has some sort of economic incentive component to it, which drives the participants in the network to maintain the network itself. So in Bitcoin and Ethereum, there is a reward for engaging in mining, which is a part of proof of work, which kind of long. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, well, that's a whole separate conversation. Perhaps we'll talk about that a little bit. But, you know, they get the miners, the people who maintain the network and gather transactions, validate them, put them into blocks build the blockchain, so to speak, get rewarded with new coins that they're able to mint themselves in special transactions. A blockchain network wouldn't necessarily need that economic incentive. Now, there are some people that think if you remove that economic incentive, then just use any sort of normal distributed database. There's some people that think you know a blockchain-based ledger network or a distributed ledger network is just really a distributed database if you don't have that right. sort of unique token to it. You know, I've seen usually large corporate attempts at trying to leverage blockchain technology if they're in an information sharing situation with potentially competitors, vendors, customers, and there isn't necessarily like a high degree of trust. If you are in that sort of information sharing environment, where there's lower trust than you're comfortable with, then perhaps some sort of blockchain-based system is a potential solution. Whether or not you know that will gain traction in the future, I mean, there's been some attempts. You know, sometimes they're referred to as permissioned blockchains. Right. IBM actually offers blockchain as a service, right? I think Accenture did for a while. I think that service is down, and a couple other kind of large tech related or tech-oriented consulting kind of shops. So talk about your practice now. What types of clients do you have? What are you helping them with? So after kind of doing the traditional IP work for somebody with a hard science background and in patents, the kind of run-up from 2016 into 2017 with crypto clients, or just the growth of the industry rather, happened. And so I was able to start bringing in some clients at the firm that I was at, and I started thinking, okay, well, perhaps I could do this 
on my own. Maybe I should do my own thing. I wasn't able to bring in all of all the clients necessarily that I wanted. Plus, they need a lot of legal work beyond just intellectual property work. At the time, I ultimately ended up leaving and joined with former business partner, Zach Swinsky, and we were running Swinsky Rosario Law for about three and a half years. And we were focused on providing outside general counsel services and IP services, commercial contracts, tech transactions, a little bit of privacy work, stuff like that. Then eventually we amicably parted ways. It's almost been actually one year now where it's just been me at Rosario Tech Law. And I've done a lot of the same work. It's a lot of commercial contracts, just a lot of agreements. You know, they could be user-facing, terms of service, privacy policy, but then also kind of, I would say in the last six months, it's gotten a little weirder in the sense that some of my clients in the crypto space, uh, which probably 90% of my clients are in crypto in some capacity, have started to think about, okay, how do we further decentralize our services and products? And sometimes in the same kind of vein or a separate question, okay, we want to transition control to a certain degree to a DAO. So what will that ultimately look like? DAO, decentralized autonomous organization. Yeah. So that takes something that may be a simple agreement between two corporate entities, but if one entity on the other side of the transaction is representing a DAO, things can get very complicated uh, because Usually then you're much more concerned about community buy-in. You know, there could be governance procedures that need to be honored as part of any sort of agreement that the DAO would enter into. So, you know, I've been doing work like that. I've also been doing kind of some interesting work with respect to IP in terms of how do you give it away? How do you license IP associated with some crypto project in the most permissive way possible? You know, a lot of uh, that work for the community in general has been borrowed from the open source movement and software. But since it's crypto, everything is just a little more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> when we come back, Nelson tells us about the political impact crypto is having on the law and where it might impact the legal world down the road. But now, as promised in this two-for-one episode, I catch up with Jazz Hampton, the CEO of TurnSignal. How you been? Good, good. It's been busy times, but thankful for that. You know, it's better than the opposite problem. So yeah, better, I'll take it anytime. Better than the alternative. Fast Case 50, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. The Fast Case 50 was like a surprise to me. Like I woke up and saw that on their website and I was flattered and honored. So I was actually literally today, I was going through that list from everyone, from, you know, professors at, at top five law schools to, to people at Bloomberg. It's It's a humbling list to be a part of. That's cool, man. That's cool. And then I saw that uh, you're accepted into the uh, Google Black Founders Accelerator program. Tell us about that. So the Google Black Founders Acceleration program is, you know, really keyed into helping all businesses uh, or businesses of all kinds really grow. Uh, but they're focusing in on founders that are underrepresented, and I and I love that. Uh, that's me, Mike, and Dre to the TRT, and and we're excited to be a part of that program. And and I know that it's going to be really valuable, both from a technology standpoint and from growing the business standpoint. Yeah, what all of that entail and what are you trying to get out of it and what do they expect from you as a participant? Yeah, they expect us to be present and to take on the learning and abilities to to be mentored by the folks at Google, but also to learn more about their products and services, find out how we can even leverage things like Google Cloud and, and their products to bolster what we're already offering to people. And then, of course, you know, help us expand into to more territories 
uh, and connect with more businesses that can be a part of our program and, and help us scale so that everyone in the country can have turn signal on their phone. And speaking of which, when we talked a few months ago, you were only in a couple jurisdictions. Now you're in more than five, what, six, seven. Where, where all are you uh, available now? Yeah, we're in eight jurisdictions uh, as of the end of August here. So Minnesota, Georgia, Tennessee, California, Florida, Illinois, Indiana, and Washington State. So we're expanding really rapidly. We want to be in the entire country in 2023, and we think we're going to do that by the end of 2023 at the minimum, uh, if not sooner than that. Um, We know that there's people all over the country that need turn signal, and we want to get to them as fast as possible. To those ends, what does it take to go to a new jurisdiction? What are you guys doing on the back end to, to get that rolled out? You know, on, on one hand, there's obviously bolstering technology. The more people you're adding, the more infrastructure that you have to build on the back end. We, we did a lot of it on the front end so that we didn't have to continually make updates to the platform. So there's a little bit of technology updating. But then, of course, it's just the lawyers. Uh, finding lawyers to answer the calls at all 24 hours in all jurisdictions is not a light lift, right? It's You got to have enough lawyers in Nebraska to answer a call at 3 a.m. Same thing in Oregon or New York. So ensuring that we have all of those attorneys on the platform is, is the heavy lift. And I mean, people listening to this know that uh, having a, a large attorney network on a system is a huge asset in and of itself, right? That is really difficult to amass. And there's, there's startups in the, in the legal space doing that or trying to do that you know, every year, every day, every minute. And we're having to you know, build the same. To build and grow, you got to have some dough. You're out there raising money too, right? Yeah, so we're just finishing up. I think we just have under 10% of the round left. Uh, we're raising $2 million here. Uh, it's led by Trucks VC, an unbelievably supportive venture capital group. I mean, they're, some of the, the people that are part of their group are everyone from Verizon to, to several car manufacturers, right? People are aligned with what we're doing. And Trucks VC's model, their portfolio is making transportation safer. And we're a part of that, right? It's more than just automated vehicles and, and improved batteries for electric vehicles. It's safety for those individuals that are driving and having interactions with you know, other drivers or law enforcement. So we love Trucks VC and the support they're lending and, and so a few other groups in, in California that are supporting being a part of this round. It's really meaningful. You know, This raise that, we, that we're just finishing up right now, it represents people who see what we've done already and say, I know how to help you expand and get more out of what you're doing. And I want to be a part of that story and that mission. So we're thankful to have it. Well, that's great. Congrats. Happening fast. Thank you. you guys are doing good work. So We need to do more with less. That is the key takeaway nowadays from almost every survey of in-house counsel. But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if you actually could do more for less? By combining legal expertise and technology, Percipient enables legal teams to get more work done for less. Buried in contracts and sales is frustrated with turnaround time? We can help with that. Did you just get hit with a subpoena and reviewing 100,000 documents and files will tax your resources or cost you a small fortune in billable hours? We can help there too. Our team of legal professionals leverage tech and project management principles with the right amount of human oversight to deliver precise, efficient, and cost-effective legal solutions. Whether it's legal operations and contract management support, subpoena compliance, or document review, Percipient is your partner in really doing more for less. Percipient. Legal services powered by technology. Okay, let's get back to my conversation with crypto lawyer Nelson Rosario. 
So you mentioned DAOs, and that's a good segue to the political aspects of crypto and blockchain. You know, DAO specifically, you know, they've got states like Wyoming and I think Tennessee and a few other, Vermont, that are pretty crypto friendly and actually recognize a DAO as an entity. I don't know if it's a business entity per se, but an entity. But describe the political scene currently, because you got some people in government, very anti. And then, you, like I mentioned, Wyoming, you got states and jurisdictions and countries that are very pro. Yeah. It's a bizarre time to be in crypto and in the sense that, for example, I, I spoke at, I think you were at Consensus in June, yep. right? Yep. Yeah, I spoke there and we were talking about, you know, can financial innovation exist, coexist with regulation? And I think it can, but I think it requires people doing things that at present they don't necessarily want to do. <laughs> but I remember the end of the conference, you know, the mayor of Austin was up there with Michael Casey, who's the chief content officer of Coin, Coindesk. And talking about how they're going to have consensus there in Austin again. And like seeing kind of high profile politicians embrace crypto is surreal. Wasn't well, it kind of inevitable? I personally, I mean, I've got a bias. I think it's inevitable that the technology will be used in ways we're not even thinking about now, but it's, it's happening, you know, it, you can't right. stop it. Yeah. I, I think it definitely shows how far we've come. I think kind of as somebody who's been doing legal work in space since 2016 and has been an interested since 2012, the space has come a very long way. And I think with respect to the political aspect of kind of the considerations that companies and people interested in the space need to be mindful of now, as opposed to previous times, is that crypto has now reached uh, a stage where it's able to influence national politics. It's able to influence nation-state interactions. Explain that one, nation-state interactions. Right. So recently there was the U.S. Treasury added, we'll just call it a mixing service, Tornado Cash, to a sanctions list, the specially designated nationals list, which is maintained by the Office of Foreign Asset Control. And Tornado Cash is a, a, a service you can use to change the address that you're sending cryptocurrency from. Yeah, it can help you upgrade the privacy of crypto that you're holding. So help you kind of more anonymize transactions. Basically, your ETH would go in to the Tornado Cash uh, contract. And then when you pull it out, nobody knows who pulled it out. You know, So you could pull out a little bit. Nobody knows where it's originating from. You as the depositor basically have like a cryptographic receipt that you can use to then pull it out. And so where this came into affecting nation state relations is that the US government asserted that Something like 430 million, I want to say, worth of Ether had been gone through the Tornado Cash contract at the direction of North Korean hacking group, right? And so the reason they placed it on the sanctions list and- Tornado Cash, the, the service is on the sanctions list. Yeah. They named the service, they named smart contract addresses, they named addresses associated with it. I think the CEO is in trouble too now, right? One of the co-founders, lead developers, got arrested in the Netherlands. And the suspicion, although I don't think he's been formally charged yet, is he's going to get charged with some sort of money laundering charges. And so the U.S. government said, look, you, you facilitated a way to launder funds at people that we say are bad actors. And so since we're going to put you on this list, and what that means is U.S. citizens can't interact with that entity, those addresses, Without permission, basically. You right. need to get some sort of special license. And 
we should point out too, but there are good uses for this technology too. Right. Yeah. People that want to protect maybe charitable donation, I guess. Yeah. Charitable donations, you know, they want a higher degree of financial privacy. I mean, that's the thing about all these blockchain based networks is part of what makes them work, putting aside the privacy coins, which we can talk about too, but most of them, they have public ledgers of all transactions. So law enforcement over the years has actually loved something like Bitcoin because they know where the money's going from point A to yeah, point that's, B. That, I always love that argument. You'll hear certain politicians say that, like, well, you know, it, it enables criminals to hide stuff. Well, in, for a lot of transactions, no. I mean, if you know the address, you can search around and find right. it. I mean, maybe, maybe it's harder to identify who owns the wallet, but the transactions are transparent. I mean, that's one of the the features right. of blockchain. Right. And, you know, and the tornado cash move is unprecedented because previously the only th- things on the list, the SDN list, have been people, right? Or assets like houses or planes or boats. There have been cryptocurrency addresses, Bitcoin addresses, Ethereum addresses that have been on the list since 2018, I think, onward. But this is an address for a smart contract. And one of the reasons that this has kind of caused an uproar in the crypto law community is who, if anyone, has standing to kind of appeal this decision, right? Right. Because it's a technology. I mean, and and you could argue many technologies can be used for ill, right? Right. And no one is in control. Email. I mean, you know, the phishing, (laughs) right? Phishing. Are you going to sanction email providers? Right. The difference there being, you know, the inventor of email could come forward, you know, without fear of repercussions and say, hey, like, I just created, you know, the, um, you know, electronic mail service. Whereas here, there's a technical argument that, no one is in control of it because there's no admin key associated with the contract. And, you know, there's the risk, any of the developers who deployed the contract, if they came forward and said, yeah, we're in control of it, well, then maybe they're going to get charged, you know, and the one developer is arrested in, in the Netherlands. So there's that question of who, if anybody, can appeal this. And then there's also the technology part, which is, okay, fine. It's on this list, but what does that mean practically? Right. So, you know, does that mean anyone who's ever interacted with Tornado Cash ever, you know, has some sort of potential sanctions liability for interacting with it, you know, moving forward? Or, you know, people that have coins in there, if they take them out, are they going to be in trouble? Probably, (laughs) maybe, Uh, you know, if somebody, if they go after them, Uh, there was also a dusting attack, which is basically somebody, an anonymous individual had a set of ETH in the contract and they started taking out small amounts and then sending them to public ETH addresses for celebrities, Shaquille O'Neal, the CEO of Coinbase, Brian Armstrong, (laughs) you know? And so, okay, is there some sort of taint associated with the, for those recipients? I've heard multiple people talk on podcasts about this and it's been raised on Twitter and elsewhere, you know, if you receive these funds, you're supposed to segregate them, right? Okay, well, how do you segregate right. in this situation? You know, so there's just a lot of unanswered questions uh, with respect to this. And kind of bringing it back to the political environment, there isn't a lot of motivation for Treasury or the federal government to clarify this. I mean, right? because where is the, you know, there's been legitimate harm to people that did nothing wrong. But there is that policy side of it. And if the policy side doesn't outweigh kind of 
let's call it like the first blush legal analysis, they will have little to no motivation to really kind of make sure that this is getting to the level of granularity it would need to, to provide clarity for people to know what the legal answers are moving forward. Right. And speaking of clarity in America, specifically in America, there's this kind of tug of war going on now between the SEC and the CFTC. Where do you think regulation is going? Where is it going to come from? Like who's ultimately going to be in charge? So there's kind of a, a turf war afoot. The CFTC, which basically says almost anything under the sun is a commodity, <laughs> yeah. has asserted even publicly that you know crypto is really under their umbrella. And the SEC for a while now has been kind of through enforcement and kind of public speaking, claiming that no, you know, crypto is every token is a security of some sort and therefore everything is under our umbrella. For me, I think that it's not clear to me why any one particular agency or any one particular approach is going to win out over any of the others, in part because of the characteristics of these networks and the tokens that live on them, the behaviors that they enable and the characteristics of them are such that unless you change the technology, they're going to continue to be these kind of multi-jurisdictional creatures, right? You know, where in one situation, a token is a commodity and in another situation, the exact same tokens of security. And then, you know, for tax purposes, it's property. And then treasury says it's money. It's all of those things all at the same time. Right. I think maybe Bitcoin pretty handily is would say the consensus it's not a security. I don't really see how you would marshal an argument that right. it is. Ethereum basically has been grandfathered into that. Now, whether it was when it first launched, is a different question. But why is it different now? Why is the question different now since, since launch? Well, there's an idea that there's a, a certain level of decentralization that has been reached so that you know participants in the Ethereum network are not dependent upon the efforts of others to derive the benefits of the network, right? Well, one reason is the statute of limitations, I think, for the SEC to bring in action was <laughs> right. passed. You know, there was also a secret meeting, apparently, with SEC staff and A16Z and some other prominent crypto-adjacent VCs. Edison and, Horowitz. Yeah. In 2018, basically telling the SEC, supposedly, hey, this is going to be the next internet. Don't kill it now. Right. You know, before it's got off the ground. But after that, I mean, most networks would still be without that statute of limitations, you know, if the SEC wanted to do anything. Now, the SEC, and I, I just focus on them because they've been the most active in terms of regulators bringing enforcements, right? The IRS put out a statement back in 2014 and was like, look, this is all property. Right. Just you got to pay capital gains tax. Which makes sense. They've issued, you know, kind of clarifying FAQs and, you know, there's all sorts of additional questions that are raised by DeFi or decentralized finance and kind of what does taxation look like with respect to staking, which is something that comes up in proof of stake systems, which Ethereum is switching to a proof of stake system in like the next month or something and in other contexts. And so I just don't see, I come back to the technology in terms of how, you know, these networks operate, the behaviors they enable. And I don't see that changing, which is why I think every regulator will continue to kind of have legitimate claim as to why they can assert their authority right or wrong i mean that's just you got to take the world as it is right right so you mentioned that you pre-law career you were in elections politics you kind of alluded to it and i think that 
is a great use case for blockchain, but will it happen? Do you think we will ever vote via blockchain? Because it solves a lot of these election fraud arguments and all the baloney you hear about in the news today. And the short answer is no. <laughs> the longer answer is I sympathize with people that feel that way, that, hey, let's just put it on blockchain. They'll fix it, right? But that viewpoint doesn't appreciate the nuance associated with elections here in the United States. Now, will another country that has like a central election authority that administers elections for their entire country, a place like Estonia, switch to some blockchain-based system? Maybe, right? But here in the United States, we have something like 9,000 different election jurisdictions. Most of them run by very small county clerks for very small groups of citizens. And I mention that because elections in the United States are already extremely decentralized. But what's more important why I don't think the technology is a good fit for the actual act of casting a vote is there's the voter registration world mm -hmm. and then there's election day and actually voting, right? And I've argued this in the past that I think a blockchain-based system is a very good use case for the voter registration world because that's information that's public and we want to be public. So we want to know at a minimum who's eligible to vote and where they're registered to vote. We do want to know that for a variety of reasons. Sometimes we don't want to know the addresses. People are registered if they're judges, law enforcement, local laws vary, right? But we need to know who's registered and that they're eligible to vote. But the moment they cross that threshold between you go to vote in person and now you're there and you're actually physically casting your vote, that's a different world. And the information that we want to know is much different from the registration. Basically, all we want to know at that point is that this individual who's in the, the voting precinct is eligible to vote and they only voted once. So that's a different kind of technical problem. And I worked in an election office that covered for three years, and it was five different major elections in Florida, right? in Florida yep, in Leon County, Florida. And um, it was uh, the 2008 presidential cycle and the 2010 midterm cycle. And, you know, there people voted on paper, on optical scan machines, and there's a paper trail. So, you know, there's kind of supplements that election security advocates kind of champion, one being risk limit auditing afterwards, where you do an audit of the tally to make sure that it's, you know, within reasonable kind of parameters uh, to detect fraud and mandatory recounts and kind of other things that you can do. But I, I think it's important to, to be clear about that kind of the bifurcation of the, the voting world, right, between the registration where the information profile that you're comfortable with being public is one thing and the, you know, actual act of voting and what that looks like, because the information that you want public there is a lot lower. Right. right. But maybe your idea does solve a lot of the problem, though, the registration part, because maybe that helps you get to, you know, there's only one vote per person and there. Although the incidence of election fraud, I think someone argues pretty low here, but. Yeah. I mean, as somebody who my first degree was in history and political science, and I focused a lot on, civic actions or participation, et cetera, and then worked in elections. And, you know, it's been kind of a passion and something I followed for years. And there just is not a lot of evidence of right. 
uh, I'm doing air quotes right. here, election fraud. Because when most people use the phrase election fraud, what they're talking about- But we are in Chicago. Maybe here. Vote early, vote well, often. Yeah, maybe right, right. <laughs> Chicago does have a, let's say, a storied history yeah. of election fraud innovation. <laughs> yeah. I do think that that has tapered down quite a bit in the past few decades. But when most people talk about election fraud, they're talking about voter impersonation, right? They're talking about somebody showing up at a voting precinct and voting- pretending to be someone they're not, or somebody pretending to be somebody who's eligible to vote and they're not. And the incidence of that is just extremely rare. Right. So the most common type of voter fraud in the country, hands down, are people being registered in more than one place because they move and they forget to cancel their registration mm -hmm. or the election office, you know, forgot to send the paperwork that they, or got lost in the mail. You know, I mean, that's why every now and then, Usually with somebody who's like, oh, the elections are fraudulent, it'll come up that they're actually registered to vote in like three places and they just forgot, you know, like, and it's not malicious per se, right? right? It's just, that's not, you know, super high on most people's priority. Right. Like, oh, did I cancel my registration in Florida when I moved to Chicago? I mean, I did, but I also, you know. That was right. my job. You divided that voter registration versus the act of voting. But to your point, let's say a few years down the road, that actually happens. You know, some people start to put voter registration on on a blockchain. Why do you need the voting booth anymore at that point? Because you got you're there, just maybe you know, for lack of better word, you have your wallet address. You just vote online. I mean, why why do you need the voting booth? If it's electronic, it could be hacked in some capacity, right? And if it's online, it definitely can be hacked, right? right? You know, and. Um, there are also political and legal and cultural reasons here in the U.S. as to why, just practically speaking, it's not going to happen. Now, there was like a big hubbubaloo, and I think it might have been 2020, about how in West Virginia, basically voters overseas were going to vote using a blockchain. That's not what happened, right? What happened was a private software provider who is fully in control of the voting blockchain allowed people to record their votes via their blockchain. Right. Obviously, there's a lot more to complexity right. in that. But the point is, one entity was in control of that blockchain. Right. That's not what we're really talking about, right? You know, it used to be, and in some jurisdictions, I'm still okay, people can vote via fax, right? Well, you lose your right to the secret ballot when you do that, right? right? And there's, I mean, we could talk about that, but that's not really germane to the discussion. But I'm old school in the sense of like, I want that paper trail, I want that <laughs> audit, you know, and I want, cause you know, it's little old ladies that are there and like, they're looking at it and they're confirming it. Which is a good point. I mean, you do have a segment of the population regardless of age that just isn't into tech. And so you've got to accommodate them, right? Right. Yeah. Everybody can get, maybe there's mobility problems, but yeah, everybody can get in the voting booth, right? But maybe not everybody has a computer. Yeah. So blockchain politics while we're on the topic, what do you think people are not talking about? Like, what do you think another issue is going to bubble up or? Yeah, I, I think kind of going back to the tornado cash discussion and uh, thinking about privacy more broadly, I think that that trying for crypto to succeed close to the manner that a lot of its advocates would like to see, the community needs to do a much better job of of convincing the broader population that this isn't really about, you know, number go up. This isn't about crypto. This is about financial privacy and privacy online in general. And I the name cryptography, right? Yeah. Right. 
And that is a, a, a needle that I haven't seen threaded yet. You know, mostly, you know, there's kind of, let's say, historical ideological reasons for that in the community. You know, there's always been a strong kind of anti-government liber libertarian bent to this. And the reality is, I mean, that doesn't really uh, hit home for the vast majority of Americans, let's say. Now, people in other countries, I think that's slightly different, you know, especially if they're used to their home country's financial system not being reliable. Right. Africa, a lot of places in Africa. Right. Yeah. Africa. Argentina had some of the highest adoption early on. It's still probably some of the highest, but they also devalued the peso, you know, multiple times over the course of like 30 years. So I don't see enough discussion, I think, about how do you win that kind of cultural component of adoption. And this does tie into something we were talking about right at the beginning is that crypto has matured to this point where the battles won in the past, you know, really starting off, will anyone use wallets, you know, on their laptop or on their phone to transact, to just send value between each other anywhere in the world, right? That battle was won early on. And then it was, oh, now we're going to remake industries. We're going to remake finance. We're going to, you know, the exchanges popped up. And to a large extent, that battle has been won as well. I mean, even with the threat of, you know, regulatory kind of crackdown, the main players have giant war chests that they simply didn't have not right. that long ago. Right? Well, even TradFi, as they say, he's coming around and right. sniffing around. and Right. But now, you know, once you start getting in that kind of nation state era where the U.S. financial superstructure has its eyes on you, that's a different set of rules that you're playing by. And that's not... That's more of a meta game than right. the previous games that were played. And the Tornado Cash situation is a perfect example of that, right? Just by declaration, the mixing service effectively was sanctioned, right? And everyone who may have thought of interacting with it or had money in it all of a sudden was facing a far different risk profile than they were the day before. Right. It's not like that was an extremely resource-intensive decision, you know, for Treasury to take, right? You know, but at that level of nation states, they just can make decisions like that. I remember in law school, I took, um, was it international human rights law? And uh, on the first day, the professor was like, you just need to know that international law is not international. It's not law. <laughs> and his point was that, you know, it's all by agreement amongst countries who more or less consider themselves equals, right. right? They're all sovereigns. And the only way that it's actually law is if it's implemented locally through local things. So there is no kind of nation state of crypto. I mean, there are some people that are talking about how crypto blockchain-based networks are going to enable, you know, network states that live at the level of, you know, the United States, Canada, France, whatever. But frankly, until you have men with guns who are, you know, knocking on people's doors <laughs> at the, you know, at the direction of right. people with power, you're not at that level, you know. And so I think that's why the broader movement, if you want to call it, has to try and figure out how to get a lot more people thinking about their privacy online because everything's gone online and it's just going to get worse and that this is an important part of it. But the arguments and the battles that have been fought in the past are not going to carry the day moving forward. Right. So 
a little more broadly speaking away from politics, but law itself. I mean, we could talk about NFTs and, you know, IP ownership, how that might probably, well, it is changing and blockchain changing that. Where else do you see blockchain technology impacting law, even the practice of law, the law itself? Yeah, I think there's been efforts so far, and I think it is promising in terms of how you can produce evidence of events happening through a blockchain-based system, and that can impact the practice of law. So there's been a couple of efforts and startups that have tried to do um, like IP ownership through blockchain technology, right? The trick there is that intellectual property ownership is it's jurisdiction dependent, right? And so each jurisdiction has their own kind of mini set of rules as to what they'll actually recognize as you know proof of ownership, let's say. So I think that there's promise there. You know, there was a, a project here in Cook County that Chicago's in back in 2016, where the Cook County Recorder of Deeds looked into mm-hmm. trying to transfer basically the land title registry over to a blockchain-based system. The considerations for government are a little different, so it, they ultimately decided it was not a great fit in its present form, but perhaps some sort of permission-type blockchain where only official, you know, kind of like government-recognized entities can help maintain. Right, which is kind of not in essence what it is now. I mean, the, your, your county recorder controls the quote-unquote database right. the deeds. There may be some way to improve there. But yeah, I think that kind of point of just trying to help your future litigious self by, you know, recording events or whatever right. in some blockchain-based system because you're worried that things may go south, there may be something there. You know, I think it's still, you know, the Bitcoin network went live in January of 2009. So it sounds perhaps a little silly to say that we're still in early days, but I do think we are in early days. So it's hard to know kind of where things are going to go, but kind of like we were saying with respect to blockchain technology and the difference between that and cryptocurrency. Use cases where you need to engage in information sharing with people that you don't trust, that they're not going to tamper with the information. Contracts. I mean, yeah, contracts. I think it'll change contract law and the way contracts are executed yeah you can envision a way to kind of like build out something like hello sign or you know right. other kind of tools or even that the performance was had for certain contracts like all right the delivery was made like you can't argue. yeah escrow crypto is a, like an a smart contract is almost a perfect vehicle for handling escrow right, right. nelson appreciate your time people want to find out more about your practice and get a hold of you where do you want them to go Honestly, maybe Twitter would be the best place to find me. At, uh, yeah, you're, you're, you are, uh, you're active on Twitter. You're, you're a good crypto account to follow. follow. In fact, some people put you on the, the top lists. Yeah, Nelson M. Rosario at Twitter. Or just go to my website, rosariotechlaw.com. Always happy to chat with people and tell them why they don't need a crypto or a blockchain network. For <laughs> Okay, that's a wrap for today's episode. As always, we really appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, etc. Also, if you like us enough, I hope you leave us a favorable review. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.